I'm Peter. I serve as the lead pastor here. Uh, if you're visiting, I want you to take your hand and pat yourself on the back. Uh, that's, that's thanking yourself for joining us. Uh, we're going to get right into it. We're going to take a little break from our Colossians series, which has been my favorite series uh, ever. Last week was the best sermon ever preached from this pulpit uh, by Joshua Guerrero. Um, besides the ones we did on video last winter. Uh, but we're going to talk about a, palm, a special Palm Sunday message today. I'm going to get this Easter lily out of the way so I don't kick it over. <laughs> palm Sunday. Now, Palm Sunday, as we, we heard, it's the day that officially on the Christian calendar marks the start of Holy Week. Now, for me, Holy Week growing up was anything but holy. In fact, on Palm Sunday, it was kind of the day that they, for whatever reason, gave us like little palm branches, and I would like make like obscene displays with them to make my brothers laugh during the mass. That's what Palm Sunday was for me. Uh, Palm Sunday was also, though, for me, it was one week until Lent ended, and I could start double fisting the butterfingers again. It had no significance that was related to the the Word of God. And so, needless to say, I'm hoping that today the Spirit of God would help us to have a lot more meaning than that out of this day. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet with me as we get to God's Word. I'm going, to, I'm going to read from Luke's account of the triumphal entry, uh, chapter 19 of Luke, starting with verse 28. We'll go all the way to verse 44. You all ready? Yeah. All right. Verse 29. When he, Jesus, drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, this is getting close to Jerusalem, at the mountain that is called Olivet, or Olives, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied. Everyone say colt. A colt on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this. The Lord has need of it. So those who were, went, who were sent went their way and found it just as Jesus had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. Then it just goes right to the next verse. Verse 35. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, everyone say cloaks. cloaks. Throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And he rode along, they spread their their cloaks on the road. And he was drawing near, already on the way, down the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, verse 38, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Verse 40, he answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Saying, verse 42, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that would make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you 
when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave one stone, everyone say stone, stone. upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. God's word. Thank you. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Jesus, please add a blessing, supernatural blessing to the reading of your word. And help us to sort things out here. God, there were people who were familiar with prophecy and they they knew the significance of this moment and yet they missed the deeper meeting. So while we had a bunch of people religiously exclaiming with loud voices, there were dead hearts and you wept and grieved in a moment where everyone else was excited. Lord, let that not be us. Let us not have all the Easter peeps and bunnies and things and colors and pastels and miss it to your own grief. Would you be pleased with how we approach your word today? And do a work today in us that is representative of what you did on the cross and with that empty tomb so that people here and people not yet here would see and savor who you are. Amen. The passage we just read described a moment that wouldn't have been lost on any first century Jew. It was rich with prophetic symbolism and messianic imagery, uh, the, the, the promise of the Messiah, the images that, that the first century Jews would have imagined the moment would be like, it was totally rich. And that's probably why this moment where Jesus enters into the city to become, to take his throne as the king, but in a way no one expected, this moment was described in detail in the first three gospel accounts and it was mentioned in the fourth. It's one of the few things that was mentioned in all four gospel accounts. And so today, I want to go back through what we just read and teach through it verse by verse. We're going to talk about cults and cloaks and stones. Now, 30 minutes from now, I I hope that you have a greater grasp, with God's help, of why Jesus is the one true king, why he is the promised Messiah, why he is above everything else, why he is the fulfillment of every hope ever hoped, and why he had to die. And my prayer is that this will affect not just how you celebrate Easter, but how you live your life and how you hold the things that are dear to you and of value to you and the things that you rely on and the relationships that you lean on. I have a high ambition for this next 30 minutes. We have a great God. Colts, cloaks, stones. Now first let's talk about the Colts. Uh, I'm not talking about that team from Indiana that's just longing for those Tony Dungy days to come back. Uh, I'm talking about the Colts mentioned in the Bible, either, either in this account or the other uh, gospel accounts or the, the prophetic imagery that, that led into this moment. Jesus is riding on a colt of a donkey. It doesn't mention that here in this story. It doesn't specify that. But he's riding on this animal with his whole entourage, causing a scene, making noise. And this moment, 
And the significance was super thick with meaning to everyone there. And that's why it offended some people. This is a well-known sign from centuries before there was a prophet named Zechariah who, who specified this moment in detail. In verse 9 of chapter 9 of Zechariah, which is in our Bible, he says this, he's speaking, the prophet is speaking to the nation of Israel who had fallen away from God and lost all hope. He says, rejoice greatly. It was absurd to rejoice in the first place to a people who had been rejected by God. But he says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. Now listen, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, in Mark's account of this moment, he, like Luke, just mentions that it's a colt. He doesn't specify that it's the foal of a donkey, like Zechariah says. But Matthew actually says it's, it's essentially one of each, and which Jesus sat on. Was there two animals? The, the point is, is that he's fulfilling a very specific prophecy. And that's exactly why, in that moment, the religious leaders who were not friends of Jesus did not like what was happening, and the noise that was emanating from it. Let's think about this cult for a second. Before any of this happened, verse 30 of, of our passage, Luke 19, Jesus says, you'll go into the village in front of you where you are entering, you're going to find a cult tied on which no one has ever sat. Now, I, I was thinking about that this week. When he tells his disciples, go find a cult, but and he didn't say like a red one or like a, a, a certain color, he said, you'll know it, it'll be distinguished by, it's the kind that no one's ever sat on. And I'm thinking like, does that look different if you've never sat on it? Like, did they have like a little like label or something like if they had never sat on it? I was, I was confused about that. But more important than that is the fact that Jesus saw it before they were even in the zip code. Jesus is the king of the universe he is God who sees with foreknowledge. Are you a parent here? Raise your hand. If you're not a parent yet, God sees your kids. Isn't that crazy? Jesus saw that donkey colt. He had foreknowledge. He knew that they would know which one it is, even if it didn't have a little label on it. And more importantly, it says that no one has ever been, no one has ever sat on it. Now, again, how they knew that no one had sat on it is less significant than the fact that no one had ever sat on it. It was reserved to be sat on by one person that was clothed in all perfect purity, born of a virgin. The one person that could say, I am pure and without sin, rode on this donkey, which, by the way, is a very strange way to lead an entourage into a city. No one ever said, hey, there's an army coming and they're approaching the gates. Oh no, w what do they look like? Okay, the king's riding on a donkey. <laughs> oh no, <laughs> that's never happened. This is just a very different type of king. He fulfills the scripture. He's meek, he is pure. He's righteous and having salvation. Sorry, I'm having an emotional day. 
Sorry, not sorry. (laughs) The trumpets were sounding and he was riding in on a colt. And I wonder what the owner was thinking. I mean, can you imagine you had an animal tied up? Uh, Someone comes up to it, starts untying it. You're like, hey, what are you doing? And they just turn to you, well, the Lord hath need. (laughs) I'm pretty sure you wouldn't be like, oh, my bad. Sorry about that. The Lord hath need, I guess. No, you'd be like, dude, get your hands off of that thing. I mean, imagine if this was a brand new car in which no one has ever driven and it was yours. And, Lord, and someone came up and said, hey, the Lord hath need. And took your keys. You would show them your hands. You wouldn't show them your keys. And so I want to ask you, uh, let's get out of hypothetical land and into very specific land. What is your cult? What is the thing that's currently in your possession temporarily of high value to you, of functional use, whether or not it's valuable in general, it's specifically valuable to you and it's a thing that will burn what is your cult? What do you consider, consider valuable? And more importantly, do you know that the Lord has need of it? Now, contextually, it's not that the, the Lord technically has need of it. It's that the Lord has a better use for it than you do. And if only that thing would be surrendered into the hands of the pure one, it could be redeemed and a thing that's not wasted, a thing that's used for his glory and not just for your aspirations or the, your uses. It can be for both. The best of use. What is, what is your cult? What is the thing that's in your possession that Jesus wants to put his finger on? He wants to redeem. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you something to my shame. About three or four years ago, I sold a truck that I had had for years. And uh, this truck was... A, I love this, this truck because my, my daughter, Hattie, my oldest daughter, when she was a baby girl, this was one of the first cars she could ride in when she had her own booster seat. And we had a special song that we would sing when we'd you know, ride, ride together. We have so much amazing memories in that truck. But I was really excited to get rid of it, and I'm just going to be real with you. Because I knew that no one would ever ask, <laughs> no one would ever ask me anymore to help them move. <laughs> This is so embarrassing to say. And I remember mentioning that, I think, to my wife. Like, hey, man, at least, you know, I don't have a truck anymore. And I remember the Lord just rebuking me. Like, that's not good, Peter. Don't worry. I'm gonna, you're going to help people move. No, not everyone at once now. If you come to me after service, I'll help you Google movers. No, I'll, I'll, I'll probably help you if I can, but I don't have a truck. What, what is your cult? The Lord has need of it. The Lord has a use for it. Don't waste it. Next, let's talk about these cloaks. These cloaks, they're mentioned twice, starting with the disciples that laid their cloaks or garments or clothing onto this beast, this donkey cult thing that Jesus is riding on. And then they started laying their cloaks on the ground where the beast would trod over it. Think about the significance 
of this. Uh, this was back in the day before people could distinguish themselves and their value and their external worth based on like, you know, uh, you know, do I have an iPhone or am I, you know, a lesser type of person with something else? You know, <laughs> sorry, I had to throw a shade. I had to throw a shade. You're still with me, everyone. Their clothing was what distinguished them. I, I am this sort of person. I am that sort of person. I wear these clothes, and, and in a moment in time, whether that that cloak was purchased uh, from a designer shop, a boutique, or it was purchased from Walmart. They were all the same. They were under the feet of the king. And all the people were the same. Their cloaks, the things that defined them, that covered them, they were under the feet of the king as he rode triumphantly into the city. Now Matthew, uh, his account mentions that there were cloaks and there were branches. In, In Mark, it says that there were cloaks and then he specifies there were leafy branches. But in John, it's the, he's the only one who mentions, he doesn't mention the cloaks, he just mentions palms. Palms. And I'm going to take a brief little aside for a second about palms that they laid down. When they laid down palms, it was significant not just because that's certain things that grew in the climate there, but a few generations before there was a revolt. Uh, Rome had started to take over the the nation of Israel and had started to crucify people and exert their authority. It was called Roman peace because anytime Rome ruled, there was technically peace. You know what that peace was? They will kill all of you so that you won't try to make any more wars. Roman peace. And for a few centuries, the Jews had put up with it until this, this one group of people called the Maccabeans, these were like dangerous brothers. They were a little violent. They had had some UFC training. And there was a, a revolt called the Maccabean Revolt. And it happened a few centuries before. And upon their entry, they were celebrating with palms being waved and laid down on the road. And since that time, up until when Jesus arrived on the scene, the, the palms were a... a a symbol of national identity to the Jews who were still under Roman oppression. They even had some coinage at the time with the palm branch on it. So this, this palm was a symbol of national identity, and it was, John mentioned, that it was laid under their feet. Now, what's significant about this? Why did I go and tell you about all that stuff? I was wondering this week, okay, was it palms, or was it leafy branches, or was it cloaks? And I realize the more important question is, what do all those things have in common? What they have in common, thank you for asking, is they cover. They're covering, they're, they're shade, either from, from sh- they're, they're covering from, from the sun or from nakedness. They both cover, they both protect. And as far as we've seen, whether, whether it's clothes that define or the, the rich symbolism and definition that comes with this national identity with the palms, they all give a certain amount of identity and definition. And functionally, they were all being laid under the feet of Jesus. And so I've already asked you, what is your cult? Now I'm going to ask you another personal question. What is your cloak? What covers you? What protects you? What defines you? What do you use for identity? that identifies who you are. And more importantly, are you willing to put it 
under his feet. Because it doesn't matter what you have if you don't see that the Lord has a use for it. And it doesn't matter what you wear as your identity if it's not placed under Jesus' feet. What, what is your cloak? Is it uh, your comfort, your job, your career, your recreation, your hobby, your, your relationships, even your most important relationships and marriages? If they're not placed under the feet of Jesus, they're wasted. They don't bring you identity. They bring you division. What is your cloak? Is it your national identity like what was happening with the Jews at this moment? Your ethnic identity? Your sexuality? Your talents? What is your cloak? Have you placed it under the feet of Jesus? Colts and cloaks and stones. This moment where Jesus rides into the city on a colt and people throw their cloaks and palms on the ground, it it, it implicitly says, this is the king now. It's go time. And and what most people thought is like, okay, man, we're going to beat these people. This dude's raising folk from the dead. He's like, people are getting well. I mean, he can take a few thousand Romans and make them die. They thought, okay, this is our time. We're going to conquer Rome now. They, they knew that this was a sacred moment and they evoked the praise of a certain psalm that was also very rich in meaning. It was a sacred text. This is Psalm 118 that I'm going to read to you. I didn't mark it, so. Psalm 118 They said, verse 25, uh, the, the first part of this verse is not mentioned in Luke, but it's mentioned in Mark. Uh, verse 25, save us, O Lord, we pray. The Hebrew translation of that is just the one word, Hosanna. Save us, O God, Yahweh. And verse 26 is mentioned all three. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this is where the religious leaders just said, look, that's too much. Y'all have gone too far now. And they said to Jesus, rebuke your disciples. They rejected Jesus and they told Jesus to rebuke the disciples for using things that were a little too sacred for this person who they thought was the king, the Messiah. They said, rebuke him. But listen, don't miss how Jesus responds to them. Because Jesus responds to them with a series of things that are just strange that he talks about with stones. And in how he responds in regards to stones is super important, especially to religious people who who experience the religious energy and can miss it just like these people missed it. He knew that the same crowds that were chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna, would just days later be shouting, crucify him. And he knew that it wasn't just the religious leaders that were rejecting him, but all of these people that were technically praising him were also rejecting his true purpose for being there. And how often do we do the exact same thing? You see, most people don't reject Jesus explicitly. The majority of the people who reject Jesus Reject Jesus by accepting him for something other than he is. Yeah. 
accepting him for something other than who he is and what he's come to do in my life and in yours. And it's a very loud, religious, musical type of rejection, just like this. So Jesus starts to mention some stones in this passage. And I want, I want to point out three stones mentioned in the, the rest of the passage. And I want you to follow with me and, and pay attention to these stones. This is important that helps us identify where we are. The first is the praising stones. Verse 39, the Pharisees said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out and praise. Now notice where they were at this moment. They were coming down from the Mount of Olives and they were outside the city, just about to enter in the city. I think it's prophetic and symbolic. This is my opinion. That he says these stones would praise. He knew that they literally, quite literally would. Meaning, the, the people who are on the outside of the city, on the outside of the faith, on the outside of the church, I'm going to bring them to life and they're going to praise me. All the religious elite who are so proud of all these external things and I've done this and I gave this and I've, I wear this and this is my title. I'm pastor, I'm bishop, I'm this. Those people are dead stones, but there are praising stones who I will bring to life so that they'll praise me forever and ever and ever In fact, 1 Peter 2 says, he says to Christians, he says, once you were not a people. Basically, you were on the outside of the city of God. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. And just verses before, he says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Praising stones. Number two, The next stones mentioned are dead stones. Verse 41, this is why I love the account in Luke, is that this strange moment juxtaposed together, sometimes you read the triumphal entry and you stop in verse 41, but you keep reading. uh, In verse 40, you keep reading verse 41 on. It seems weird that they're right next to each other. But literally, after all this praise, and he says, these stones will worship me, It says, verse 41, then he drew near to the city and he wept over it. He was weeping over the dead stones, the stones of renown, the stones of religious superiority that would be judged, stones that he loved, people that he loved. He said, would that you, even you had known the things that would make for peace. You don't know, you don't get it. You don't understand why I'm here. You don't understand why you're in church. But now they are hidden from your eyes for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you. He was specifying 40 years after this, 71 AD. The enemies will set up a barricade, surround you, hem you in. They will tear you to the ground, you and your children, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the day of your visitation. Multiple times earlier in the gospel accounts, Jesus' disciples, it's recorded as them looking at the temple building and be like, hey, Jesus, look at this ornate stone on this building. That's pretty good, huh? And Jesus never encouraged their praise. He's like, that, that's, that's going to be down. 
but in three days I'll build it up again. (laughs) They didn't understand the symbolism, but he wasn't excited about what they were excited about. How often do I want Jesus to get excited about what I'm excited about without really just surrendering like, okay, what, what are you passionate about, Jesus? It's hard for me because what seems like right and religious, I would think, you know, I'm a church leader, God. You're excited about this stuff, right? I don't know, not always. I want to be careful that my stones aren't dead stones. Jesus is not impressed with religious externals. He's moved by your heart. He loves your heart. It's precious. It's eternal. Either with him or apart from him. He's interested in taking stones, hearts of stones, and making them hearts of flesh, as he promised in his word. That's my story. I, I grew up religious. You know, I would have said all the right things about Jesus. Uh, and, and, you know, I knew Jesus as this and that. And I, I could quote a few scriptures and add a few things in there that I thought were scriptures that weren't scriptures. And I was so proud of it. Uh, but I was a dead stone. And it wasn't just the way I treated young women or the things that I looked at. It was just, even my praise was empty. I was a dead stone until Jesus made me alive with him. Praising stones, dead stones. And finally, the third stone mentioned in this passage, it's it's not explicitly called out, but it's here. In fact, it's the whole topic of this whole entry. It's the whole topic of the whole Bible. This stone is the whole topic of all of history. The third stone is the rejected stone. I just read to you Psalm 118. This sacred moment where they're entering the city and they're saying, Hosanna. They're saying... They're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But just verses before, verse 22, it says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That cornerstone is the one who can make dead stones into living stones. And the one that can take the facades of religious external piety and tear them to the ground Because he is the rejected stone. The stone that the builders rejected. Jesus, who was cloaked in all purity, chose to put on our impurity and our shame like a cloak. And he was whipped in the back 39 times, his flesh torn open, to bear the penalty for what we deserve. That sin that I thought was so cute. Here's how cute it was. The pure and righteous Savior was whipped and was beaten. And somehow we say, which is the irony of all history, that this is Good Friday. They didn't see it. I didn't see it until I was 14 years old. Some of us in here don't yet see it. And um, I just want you to know that God weeps over you. And I'm up here and I'm supposed to be like, all right, don't get too, you know, like emotional and like, like make people feel weird because they won't come back to church. But you know what? God weeps over you. You are so much more important than you, you ever have known. 
You are so much more wicked and evil than you could understand, and yet so much more loved than you could ever imagine. And that's why he chose to become the rejected stone. He would be the rock of our salvation. He bore the punishment we deserve for our sin. The perfect lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. That's why Jesus had to die. And he was laying in a tomb behind this immovable, massive stone on a Friday evening. Three days almost after, on a Sunday morning, that immovable stone was brought to life to make way for a more triumphant moment for this Jesus than the moment where he entered into the city. It's when he got up out of the grave. And that's the foundation of our hope. 500 eyewitnesses have said they saw this man who was dead and then he was undead. And that is a verifiable miracle that our whole faith relies on. There is not a single idea or faith like ours that relies on this miracle of Jesus being resurrected in a city that it would have been most easy to disprove and yet never was. People died for this truth. What people? Living, praising stones who are willing to render their colts and to lay down their cloaks because I've already asked, what is your colt and what is your cloak? But the ultimate question is, who is your stone? What do you rely on? What defines you? What determines how you live your life? Is it you or is it the righteous king? Jesus says that um, they won't leave one stone upon another because you didn't know the day of your visitation, he says. Do you know the day of your visitation? The Bible says that while it is yet today, do not harden your hearts. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you know that even as I was, uh, I was kind of making fun on social media, I was kind of making fun of my city <laughs> last night, just... What a strange place, Bend, Oregon. I always say it, God, the, the heart of Caucasia. And yet, Lord, that's the city where you found me. You brought me to life. And Lord, even in this place, as we're praying, you're bringing people to life. And families are, are being changed. Legacies are being restored. And God, I'm asking that we would know the day of our visitation. That Palm Sunday wouldn't just be another day on our calendar. God, of all the important days, the most important day is today. But I pray that you would do a work that no altar call could quantify. Lord, help us to see what we rely on truly. Let this be a holy week that is not just holy in name, but it's holy in life. That we would see you and savor you like never before. Lord, if there's people here that don't yet know you, I pray that you would give them faith even now to cry out. You, you said that the very stones will cry out. And you said elsewhere that if you cry out in the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. 
And I'm asking Jesus for people to cry out, Jesus, make me new. I believe upon who you are and what you've done. And I'm asking, Lord, that you would do a mighty work even now. Yes, God. Even now, you're bringing people to life. Thank you, God. Amen.